One of the things that uh, our denomination has done is encouraged uh, pastors to have some kind of spiritual retreat. So next week, Debbie and I will be away Monday through Friday. We'll be in the Berkshire Mountains, and uh, you can pray for us that the Lord will use us to renew us. Um, then next Sunday, while you all are here to worship and then staying for lunch, uh, Debbie and I will be in Oxford. Uh, the first church I pastored when I graduated from seminary is in that town. There, without a pastor. They said, would you preach for us a couple times? So I leave you in Agilon's capable hands this next Sunday, the 13th, and also the 20th, and then on Easter. So please pray for us. All right, let's pray together now. Lord, we thank you that we can come to your word. We love you. You've died on the cross to pay for our sins, every one of them. And you have said you've removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. Encourage us with these truths from your word, as well as our um, look at another psalm this morning. Uh, grow us to be more like Christ, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul Bellis is 24. He left his throwaway camera on the, the Snowdonia Peak in Wales. It's one of the highest points in that country. He left it there with a note. And um, it said, take a picture and then leave the camera for the next person. Um, it's a beautiful spot. 30 hikers obliged him. And the camera ran out of film after about four days, which is when Brian Jones got into the act. He's a park ranger, and he said, um, we find lots of equipment on the hills during the year. And we do our best to reunite those things with their owners. I found the camera, and I thought it had been lost until I saw the note, and I was going by his house, and so I dropped it off. The question, though, is why did Paul leave a camera with a note on top of the mountain? And the answer is this. He said, I was talking with a friend who said, you can't trust people anymore. I didn't want to believe that, and so I did this experiment, and it proved you can trust people. Well, whether you buy his conclusion or not, what we would say is that was an, extension, that was an expression of God's common grace. Um, yeah, you can trust people some of the time, and you can't trust all the people all the time. Uh, I mean, have you ever had a person that you trusted do you wrong, lied about you, uh, gossiped about you, misrepresented you, was unfaithful in some way? I have, and it is very hard. And our Lord knew this seedy side of life. John chapter 2, we read these words. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. When it comes to the subject of trust, what do we want? I'll tell you what I want, 
I want to be part of a community where people have my back. One in which I can safely share my inner self, including some of my deep disappointments and my fears. I want to be around people who truly love me. And that's the kind of thing for which we strive in this church. We want to grow as a community of people who are more and more committed to one another. And there are really two parts to that. Um, we need to be people growing in trustworthiness who are safe and on whom others can depend. And we also need to grow in our trust in the Lord. Well, the next psalm, the one we just heard read a few minutes ago, is a psalm about trust. And in it, the Lord calls his people, don't try to go life alone. Entrust yourselves to me. So, if you have a Bible, we're looking at Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 11. It's pretty easy to see something of the structure here. If you just let your eyes flow down over the verses, you will see a strange word pop up three times. It's Selah. It's there at the end of verse 3, end of verse 7, and the end of verse 11. What's it mean? Well, it means amen or exalt or praise or lift up the voice or peace or perhaps raise your voice to a higher pitch. We really don't know what Selah means, but it is a marker. It breaks up this psalm. And uh, the writer here addresses three questions. Um, where is God in a physically broken world? Where is God in a morally broken world? And how do we relate when we live in the middle of a physically and morally broken world? Where is he in that case? And after we've looked at those parts, then we'll conclude by seeing something of what the Lord suggests in terms of trusting him and growing in our own trustworthiness. Well, where is God in a physically broken world? We start in verse 1. God's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or God is a clear help found in troubles. Where do you go when you're in trouble? The Lord wants us to move toward him. He's a present help found in our troubles. Well, what kinds of problems? Um, this first section, verses 1 to 3, uh, pivots on two parallel phrases that are in verses 2 and 3. Uh, the first is, though the earth gives way, when there are earthquakes, might be another way of saying it, and uh, when the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. God is our refuge and strength found in troubles like those. And then follow some um, images of turbulent crises. The writer remains confident only because God is protecting him in the middle of dire threats. Uh, psalm 46 is a psalm of trust. 
one commentator has said that the whole book of Psalms can rightly be viewed as a book about trust, every psalm about trust. And we see that idea in other places. For example, uh, Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for you, O Lord, alone make me dwell in safety. Or how about uh, Psalm 23? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Or what about Psalm 27? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And you can think of others, I'm sure. Earthquakes, tsunamis, wild hurricanes, torrential floods. I mean, did you check the news this morning? Hurricane through uh, Iowa. And at last count, there were seven people who had been killed, including at least two children. Scary things unpredictable things in the natural world. And so isn't Psalm 46 a timely reminder of life in the 21st century? So where do you go when things feel overwhelming? When much of life seems to be arrayed against you? The writer calls our attention to faithful God. He's never failing and he's always present. You remember our friend Martin Luther, he wrote the song we just sang. Do you know why he was prompted to write that song? This psalm, Psalm 46, motivated him to write. A mighty fortress is our God. And it has these words, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. In a physically broken world, God is your refuge and strength. He's a help. We find him in time of trouble. And so this, this section ends with the word our little friend, Selah, or amen. In faith, in a troubled world, can you say Selah? Can you say amen? Well, the second stanza, verses 4 through 7, build on what we've just found here. The Bible tells us that the whole creation is groaning, waiting for the Lord to return, and as the creation groans, people moan. And one of the reasons that people moan is because of governments that are opposed to God's rule. Now, the verses that we just looked at, verses 1 through 3, they culminate with four phrases that... Um, that summarize for us the turbulent world in which we live. The earth is quaking, the mountains are shaking, the waters are raging, the mountains are heaving. But there's more trouble on planet earth than just physical turbulence. Look at verse 6. The nations rage, 
the kingdoms totter. Now that word nations, we've seen that before. Remember back in Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage? Uh, and we noted that the word is a Hebrew word that sounds like what it means. It's a derogatory term that Jews would use to describe Gentiles, and it's here. Um, the nations, Gentiles, growl and murmur, we're actually told. And the kingdoms, while well, the sphere of kings, political entities, people of power and dignity and influence, they totter. Governments are both rebellious against the Lord and fragile. They can bring war, spread death, defy God, and so think about some of the kings and kingdoms that we find in the Bible. The pharaohs of Egypt, then uh, how about Ahasuerus and his friend Haman, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, more recently people like Hitler, Stalin, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Kim Jong-un. The Bible, generally speaking, represents nations, kingdoms, kingly leaders as opposed to God. They rage and they shake. And so where is God when these leaders oppose him? Well, look at verses 4 and following. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. First, God is in his holy dwelling place. Second, he has a river. And third, he's in a, his presence makes a city glad. And of course, the city in ref, being referred to here is Jerusalem. I know, you're right, there isn't any river in Jerusalem that we know of. So let's just pause and think about that for a minute. This is theological poetry. The artist theologian, to make his point, can place a river any, anywhere he wants, right? And so he says, there is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God. So what does this river symbolize? It's like the rivers that flow out of the Garden of Eden. The river of God gives life. It quenches the thirst of dying people. And we find this idea of life-giving uh, in symbols on the temple. You can check it out in 1 Kings. Verse 5, then, seems to be the center point of the second stanza. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. In contrast to quaking mountains... 
the city of God will not be shaken. And the psalmist trust, well, it's not an inward focused thing. He's not trusting because of navel gazing and his own sense of competence. Someone has said, this confidence is generated by the, president, the presence and providence and protection of God. Nations and kingdoms try to defy God in multiple ways, but God protects his own from moral evil. And so verse 7 ends with another selah. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Uh, Eugene Peterson calls this description um, the Jacob wrestling God who is our fortress. Think for a moment about the, si the, the sights and the sounds that have come to us from Ukraine. Uh, we know people from that part of the world. They have been here. They've worshipped with us. We have been there. How did this travesty ever happen? Well, listen to these words as you think about the moral evil that's represented in kings and kingdoms. Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die to dust returning, and his purposes will end. The turmoil in the world is an indicator. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, don't depend on human structures. Trust in the Lord. And to this truth, end of verse 7, all of God's people can say, Amen. Well, if the first section reminds us that God is your refuge, he's a place to hide in the storms of life, then the second section teaches that you're safe in God's city. He is your security. Now, what do we find in this last part of the psalm? Verses 8 to 11. Where is God when we're living in a physically and morally broken environment? Threats of the natural world and of the moral world are very real, and so verse 8 beckons us. Do you see it? Come, behold the works of the Lord. We might just put an ellipsis there. We might pause for a moment and say, Come behold the works of the Lord. Study God's providence. Think about he, how he works in history. It's a wonderful thing just to go back and look at our own personal histories, but also global history. Because again and again we see God intervening on behalf of his people in amazing ways. Come behold the works of the Lord. But look at the next phrase. What desolations he has brought on the earth. That word desolations might seem like a strange one at this point. So let's talk about that a little bit. How does that fit in with a creator God? 
Well, we learn a little bit more in verse 9. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God is not, we need to say this to ourselves about a thousand times. God is not going to be deterred in the advance of his global purposes. He is working to establish his kingdom, and so we pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Not as... um, a pipe dream, but rather as a reality. God is moving history to his accomplished goal where all peoples will bow before him and worship and serve him. And so, wherever human beings wage war against God, he will wage peace whatever devastating force he needs to use to do so. One commentator has described just this section, what devastation he has made in the earth. Describes it this way. The picture is of a silent battlefield after the horrific clamor of war. The God of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So, verses 1 to 3, God your refuge Verses 4 to 7, God's your security. Verses 8 through 11, God is your peace. He's the place of peace. He's bringing peace. Kind of reminds me of what we find in Isaiah chapter 2. Verses 2 through 4 talks about how the nations are going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. God is leading his people to the establishment of his kingdom worldwide. So what do we do with these truths? That's where we want to go now. God is leading us into a future of his making where he will vanquish all of his enemies and ours, and he is blessing us And we experience his blessing as he leads us forward only by faith, as we trust in him. He's making us more and more like himself, more trustworthy, more entrusting of ourselves to his purposes. He's taking us along the road of faith. So think about it for a moment. Where do you see the notion of trust uh, best illustrated in the Bible? Where would you look? The best, best illustration of trust in the Bible. Isn't it Jesus? Yeah. He trusts his father's plan. He leaves heaven. Comes to earth to live a self-sacrificial life even though it takes him to the cross. He trusts, and he's ascended back to heaven. He is Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of angel armies. He's the king of kings. And through this psalm, he's now calling you to live in relationship with him. 
So consider the major areas of your life. Well, there are about six of them, I think, right? Uh, let's see if we can name them. Uh, how about uh, health and recreation? Um, physical, uh, health and recreation, spiritual, ethical would be another dimension of life, right? Um, um, cultural, social, uh, home and family, career and finance. Which one did I miss? Um, you can fill in the other ones in. Think about those different areas of life. Which is the area of life that you most need to entrust to the Lord? Your health? Your job? Your family? I don't know. Well, what about this as a way forward? As you head for bed at the end of the day this week, and as you awaken in the morning, why not a short prayer along these lines? <clears throat> Lord, I entrust myself to your care. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Please help me to be more trusting of you and more trustworthy to the people around me. What about if you were to pray that? just for this week. Might that blow some wind into your sails of uh, giving yourself more fully to the Lord? Charles Durr, if I pronounced his name correctly, was a um, famous Reformation woodcut, woodcut artist, and maybe he can help us a little bit here. He depicts a gallant knight who's on a horse. Uh, it's a white horse, and it is going through a poplar forest on a moonlit night. But alongside is a ditch, and there are hideous creatures reaching out to try to grab him, pull him off his horse. The viewer is afraid for his safety until he looks into the knight's eyes. And he notices that they are not focused on the monsters around him. Rather, they are fixed on the top of the mountain where his home is. The evil forces don't have any advantage over him unless they're able to capture his attention and make him afraid. The God of Psalm 46 is our resurrected Lord, and he promises to make you like himself. He promises that he's going to conform you to the image of Christ. He's going to make you a person who trusts him. He's going to make you a person who is trustworthy. In fact... Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same glory, into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, this week, 
as you move into a world you've never experienced before, like the night, keep your eyes on Christ. He is your eternal home. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask you to bless it to us. Even now as we celebrate this meal of the Lord's Supper together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.